Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Pastor Doug and our worship leaders and our worship ministry here. It is such a joy to have them lead that part of our worship service. You know, the whole thing is a worship service, from our giving to sacraments to preaching to fellowship to praying. I'm very grateful for those who lead our music part. I do invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3. If you're visiting with us today or a guest, we are in a series for 10 weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes in our Old Testament, classified as one of the wisdom books. And the focus of Ecclesiastes is finding life's purpose. We've learned that Ecclesiastes is unique because it is a journal. It's an honest journal, very candid journal, written by a disillusioned pleasure seeker. Someone who was on a pleasure safari. We're told that the preacher wrote it, most likely Solomon. Someone who spent years chasing pleasures only to realize that the more he binged on pleasures and pleasing himself, the more depressed and miserable he became. And nothing's changed today. Some of us are on that same trajectory today. And he only discovered towards the end, he get glimpses of it through the book, but he finally discovered that the only satisfaction in life and in death comes by fearing and obeying God. That brings us to chapter 3 this weekend. I love this chapter. I'm enthused about this chapter. And I believe God is going to use this chapter to breathe some gospel life into us this morning. Chapter 3, Solomon is talking about God's sovereign timing in the world. Sovereign timing that is both encouraging, but if we can be honest, quite frankly, sovereign timing that often mystifies God's people that often bewilders God's people, that often puzzles God's people, confuses God's people, and quite honestly, sometimes makes God's people angry. But Solomon wants us to consider God's sovereign timing and to remember something. Here's what he wants us to remember. remember. He wants us to consider God's timing and remember that everything in our world is exactly on God's divine time schedule. All in God's time for his purposes. That's our title this morning. In other words, hear this. In other words, Solomon wants to explain something to us. He wants us to understand that our lack of control in life is actually the thing that can bring us hope. Because we are not in control of virtually anything, and it's a reminder there's someone who is. And so this chapter is designed to take those who know Christ and lift their vision once again and remind us who really is in control. And that is why we can say that Solomon wants us to get the fact that the fact that we don't understand and control anything much is actually a source of hope. To do that, he's going to point us in two directions this morning. One, he's going to ask us to look around and remember God orders time. And then secondly, he's going to ask us to look ahead and remember there is judgment coming, which is a common theme in Ecclesiastes. First of all, look around and remember God orders time. This is the first 14 verses of this chapter. Now, you don't have to be a philosopher. You don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be a leading public intellectual to know there's times and seasons to life. And that is exactly what the first eight verses get at. The Bible says, look around. Remember something, O people of God. Now, I know not everyone here knows God, but I know a lot of us do. And this chapter wants to announce to us, remind us, remember something. God is the one who is ordering time. 
Everything around us has a time and a season, and they're on a divine time schedule. I'm going to read the first eight verses in English. I love hearing the Word of God read in different languages. Verses 1 to 8 in English. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. There is a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and there's a time to uproot. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. That means there's a time for capital punishment or even war if God ordains it. There's also a time for medicine and ceasing and healing. There's a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. There's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away. There's a time to tear and a time to mend. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love. And there's a time to hate. There's a time for war. And there's a time for peace. Now, as you look at those first eight verses, I want you to notice something. A number of Hebrew scholars point this out, sometimes from a little different perspective, but there's no real natural logical progression in these verses. Several Hebrew scholars have pointed out that what you have here are 28 items in 14 pairs, meaning that all of this is comprised of multiples of seven. That may mean something. They point out seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. That comes out over and over. One Hebrew scholar, who is a very good scholar, said, what you have here is a complete summary of the seasons of life. That's the point. And it's a reminder that as we look around, God is the one who orders time and that he is in absolute full control, not part control, full control of history, of every detail of history. And you don't have to look far to see that that's a completely opposite perspective from the secular man, the natural man. Just one example of thousands. But George Santayana, someone I studied in undergraduate level in philosophy, a Spanish philosopher who actually ended up teaching at Harvard, taught at Harvard from 1889 to 1912 in the Department of Philosophy, militant atheist. He said, why shouldn't things be largely absurd, futile, and transitory? They are so, and we are so. I could go on and list all kinds of statements by atheists, skeptics, and agnostics to the exact opposite perspective that Solomon is giving here. Now, as I was looking at the ministry of Jesus this week and considering how he operated on a time schedule and never seemed in a hurry, always knew exactly what was going on, it becomes very clear that he would be in full agreement here as we look at his ministry and overlay it with Ecclesiastes 3. In other words... Jesus always knew what time it was. When you look at his ministry, there's no doubt what time it was and that he was acutely aware of that and that the gospel writers and the New Testament writers were aware of that. For example, the Apostle Paul says he was born in the fullness of time. That's a, t that's a, that's a time schedule. There's a divine time schedule there. That's Galatians 4. When Jesus was told by his mother that all the wine was gone, John 2. He responded, now the first part sounds a little, maybe a little harsh to Western ears, woman, <laughs> I wouldn't suggest calling your mom that, in today's culture, young people, why do you involve me? He was not being disrespectful, by the way, in Middle Eastern culture. Why do you involve me? And then he said this, my hour has not yet come. 
Jesus always knew what time it was throughout his ministry. He never seemed in a hurry. Do you feel in a hurry a lot of the time? Feel like you're gasping for breath? I do. Jesus was never in a hurry. When Jesus was told that God had appointed his death, but not yet, he told a group in John 7, my hour has not yet come. Religious leaders were trying to hurry the process along. He said, my time has not yet come. And yet later the Apostle Paul says, at the right time, Romans 5, Christ died for the ungodly. So Jesus knew what time it was. Paul knew what time it was. We're even told Jesus rose on the third day. Every aspect of Jesus' life shows that he understood he was on a divine time schedule, a divine time trajectory. Everything in his life showed that he trusted God, the Father's divine time schedule. Now, the biblical understanding of time is at direct odds with a secular historiography. In other words, a secular philosophy of history. A secular philosophy of history, which tends to be circular, is at direct odds with a biblical historiography, that there is a line, there's a direction history is going. And here it begins with Genesis. You've got to go back to Genesis. Parents, I want to encourage you. Becky and I are doing this in the parenting class on Wednesday night. We're encouraging parents, take your kids back to Exodus. I mean to Genesis. Exodus too, but Genesis. Show them how everything is rooted in especially those early chapters of Genesis, that there is an all-powerful God. He is personal. He is loving. And everything he does is for his own glory as he creates and begins to unfold human history. A God who, according to Ephesians 1.11, you know Ephesians 1.11? I love Ephesians 1.11. A God who, quote, works out all things, not, not, not some things, all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. That's gospel hope. A God who is all-powerful. Hear that. All-powerful, loving, forgiving, filled with mercy. A God who is trustworthy. He's good. He's good. He's all-wise. He's all-powerful. And He is all-knowing. Some of us desperately need to hear that today. A couple verses that I just... Law. These, these just fill you with gospel hope. Isaiah 40, 18. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? Obvious answer is none. Or how about this one? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Some of you know this. Some of you, this is new. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Now, over the centuries, theologians have used a word. The word itself doesn't appear in the Bible, but the concept does, and the root of it does. The word, the word is providence. In fact, we have a state in our nation, which is the capital. It's named after it. Providence. Providence. Meaning, in fact, the Latin root of it is the God who sees sees ahead, who sees and provides. He sees and provides. There's a lot of great catechisms and confessions that declare this. I picked the Westminster larger catechism, the Westminster Confession from the 1640s. You had the Westminster Confession, which laid out the Christian faith, 
but then there's two catechisms coming off it, the shorter, the larger, shorter for children, larger for adults. This is question 18 from the larger catechism, and it has just a gospel hope-infused answer to the whole question, what are God's works of providence? Let me read it. Question 18, Westminster Larger Catechism, what are God's works of providence? Now look at that answer. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all His creatures, ordering them and all their actions to His own glory. To His own glory. Ordering everything. That is a God who is in charge. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, older people, church, this is powerful tonic for weary souls. And we have weary souls here this morning, don't we? Some of us are very weary. Some of us need gospel-infused hope this morning. And if you don't right this second, you will tomorrow. Or later this week or later this month. We need this all of the time. This is powerful tonic. That's why theology isn't just abstract stuff. This is the stuff we live or die by. And that's why meditating in Scripture and reading Scripture and memorizing Scripture, especially on themes like this, is so important for us. It reminds us that our Father knows best when it comes to His sovereign timing in our life. And that we can trust His providential timing in our lives. That's what it means. Even when... Even when that providential timing results in painful circumstances that we are not able to understand. Even when that sovereign timing results in heartfelt sorrow, weeping, heartache, grief, and loss on a human scale. And you don't have to look very far in Scripture to see this. Let me give you two examples. I think you'll find these encouraging. One, Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul tells us something. Again, some of us know this. Some of us, this is new territory. But in his New Testament letters, at one point, Paul says that he had a very painful situation in his life. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was, put it in vernacular, driving him crazy. And he says that he pleaded three times for God to take it away. Now, you don't get the hint that that was some kind of just flippant prayer. He says he pleaded with God three times to take this thorn in the flesh away from him. Whatever it was, it was not pleasant. And we don't know how painful it was psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, or physically, but it was painful. And God's answer in his providence and loving timing said, no, my grace will be sufficient for you to endure this. Let's go one step further. Jesus, the Son of God, Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the bottom of the Mount of Olives there, pleaded with his Father that he might not have to go through the whole Passion Week and the crucifixion. And God the Father answered no. And Jesus had to say, nevertheless, thy will be done. This is where the prosperity gospel completely goes over the cliff. When we somehow believe that we can say it, claim it, 
And that if something in our life is miserable, it's of Satan. If something in our life brings sorrow, it's of the devil. If something in our life is painful, it's not of God. The Bible is extremely clear that God's timing at times, that God's sovereign providence at times can cause great sorrow in our lives. And that that doesn't mean it's off schedule. That can mean it's right on schedule. That it can cause heartbreaking grief and loss to us. But here's the difference between a secular historiography, a secular worldview. The pain inflicted by a loving Heavenly Father has good purposes to it. That's the difference. The pain of a Heavenly Father inflicting divine sorrow on us is for His glory and our good. That's the difference. Even if we can't see it at the moment. Even if we don't see it for 10 years, even if we never get it, we have the promise that what he is doing comes from the hand of one who loves his people. If you're one of his people, if you've repented and trusted in Christ and been born again, you're one of his. And you can rest assured that whatever's taking place, whatever has taken place, no matter how heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, how grief-stricken, how sorrowful, how much the loss may overwhelm us at times, it comes from the hand of a good God who knows exactly what he's doing. And if you have any doubts, look at Jesus, look at Paul. Several years ago, before Becky and I came to this church, and just the couple years leading up to us arriving here, we went through a very, very painful season of ministry. There's a few of you that know this, but there's a lot of you don't. It was an extremely painful season of ministry. It went on for over two years, and in a word, it was brutal. I, don't need it. I really don't know any other adjective to describe it. It was brutal. The pain was unrelenting, and it was so piercing at one point for one season that we spent a couple different times two weeks at a shot, on our knees every night before we'd go to bed asking God for deliverance, pleading for intervention, for something, pleading with God to intervene, to stop the lies, to expose the deception, to uncover the truth. There were tears, there was confusion, there was sorrow, there was heartbreaking loss. And in the end, God did not remove the circumstances. Instead, he removed us. And we had to say, we, I mean, we had a choice at that point. Everybody has a choice at that point. And the choice is, do we say, my will be done or thy will be done? Even when none of it makes sense to us. And none of this made sense to us. And we had to take refuge in passages. Love this. Like 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18. Just listen to this. These are the kinds of passages that Becky and I had to turn to over and over through that two to three year period. For our light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal glory that is far beyond comparison. So we fix our eyes Not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. 
That's the only way to navigate stuff like that. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so we preached the gospel to ourselves and did the only thing we could do. And are thankful we had parents around us and friends around us who preached the gospel to us with us. Solomon is teaching us the same thing here in Ecclesiastes 3. He's telling us God is making all things beautiful in time for those who love and fear him. Look at chapter 3, verse 11 and verse 14. He has made everything beautiful in its time. We're talking about God's sovereign timing here. He has also set eternity in the human heart. No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That's an understatement. Verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. Why? Because it's all on a divine time schedule and he's all powerful so he can deliver the goods. He can make it happen. And God does it. Why? To confuse us? No. He does it so we'll fear him. Again, Solomon wants to remind us that it is only when we finally come to realize that we are absolutely not in control of virtually anything that there is truly hope because we start looking up to the one who is. One of the oldest sayings in the ancient church is a phrase, a very short phrase in Latin that summarizes God's relationship to his people. And I love it. It's a very short Latin phrase, Deus pro nobis. Translates, God for us. God for us. Who's the us? Those who are his own. Those who are redeemed, blood-bought, forgiven, who have repented and trusted Christ. Those who have been called out of darkness, who have been adopted placed in union with Christ, and have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. God is for, friends, God is for his people, for those redeemed by Christ, those who fear God, those who are risen with Christ, those who are hungering for righteousness. God wants you to know, Deus pro nobis, God is for you. And he wants you to know that whatever's going on in your life, whether you're having a good week, bad week, good month, bad month, good year, bad year, good decade, bad decade, to trust him because he knows what he's doing in our lives. And then I love Romans 8. If God is for us, that phrase, who can be against us? And the answer is nobody. So God's people can rest assured, Ecclesiastes 3 is driving this home, that God is working all things for good in the lives of his people. And his timing is perfect even when his people are experiencing heartbreaking, crushing sorrow and cannot figure out what's going on. To remember God is good. God is loving and he is for his people. And that is why theology matters. That is why the doctrine of providence is so encouraging. Why it is so gospel reassuring and it's so full of promise. Now there's a problem. Oh yeah. There's a problem. What's the problem? The problem is we get impatient with God's timing. I'll confess. Confession is good for the soul, right? I'll confess. We get impatient. Go back to that situation I talked about with Becky and I. I cannot tell you the number of times we were on walks and we were crying, pleading, confused, heartbroken. And it dragged on month after month after month for several years. 
And at times, we became impatient, and we confessed that to God. We became confused, and then it, it's a short step from there to doubting, and it's a short step from there to accusing God, and then to bitterness. And the Bible is filled with examples of people who doubted God's timing, became impatient with God's timing, and got angry at God's timing. I don't even have time to read through all the names. You just got David in the Psalms wondering, where's God? If you want to read the most depressing psalm, the most existentially dark psalm there is, read Psalm 88. It ends with the phrase, and the darkness is my closest friend. Sounds like something that Albert Camus or Jean-Paul Sartre or Friedrich Nietzsche uttered out. It just sounds despairing. Or you've got King Saul who got really impatient at one point and decides to offer his own sacrifice and gets rebuked. Or Job wondering, where's God's justice? And starts accusing God. One of the reasons God took Job and let him go through what he did was there was things in Job, even though he was called blameless and righteous up front, it's very clear that as things went on in the book, there's gunk in his soul that needed to come out. And one of these things is he started accusing God because things weren't going his way and nothing made sense and he got confused. Or you got Habakkuk who got impatient with God's delayed justice. Or Mary brother of, I mean, his, her brother Lazarus who died and Jesus was delayed and delayed himself in coming and she got angry. She gets upset. She gets confused. Why weren't you here on time? He wouldn't have died. Translation, you blew it. Your timing's off. Or Jonah. Talk about a guy who got impatient with God's judgment. It brings up something C.S. Lewis said that's so powerful. He wrote a little book called A Grief Observed about the death of his wife. It's brutal. It's good. It's just raw. But in that book, he said something that I think is one of the most profound spiritual insights when it comes to this kind of topic, and it is this. He said, when Christians become discouraged, yea, disillusioned, yea, even angry at God, he said, here's the danger. When a genuine Christian is on that trajectory, the danger is not they're going to end up an atheist or disbelieving in God. He said the danger is they're going to start believing horrible things about God. He said that's the great danger. I'll start believing God isn't paying attention anymore to me. That this whole endeavor was just one gigantic mistake. He, he should have never led me down this road in the first place. I will start to accuse him, blame him, and start believing he's not good He's cruel, he's out to give me, get me, and he's not worth serving anymore. That is the great danger when we start down the road of Job. And so that is why Solomon says, look around, preach gospel truth to yourself, and remind yourself God orders all things, orders all time, and he knows exactly what he's doing, even if it results in sorrow, pain, suffering and misery at moments in our life. And if you ever believe otherwise, look at Paul, look at Jesus. Secondly and lastly this morning, the other direction he wants us to look to remember that God sovereignly is timing all things for his glory is he says, look ahead, judgment's coming. Christianity, as we said, does not believe in a circular historiography, a circular view of history. Believes history is going somewhere. Look at verse 15. Whatever is has already been, and what has been before 
And God will call the past to account. God will call the past to account. Now, when I looked at that last phrase in a number of English translations, the Hebrew is a little awkward. You get in the NIV, which I'm reading here, God will call the past to account. English Standard Version, God seeks what has been driven away. Closely as I can figure out and translate the Hebrew, it says something like God seeks or requires what has passed. God seeks or requires what has passed. Meaning what? Solomon seems to be saying that time goes by swiftly. We forget things get fuzzy, but God is keeping track of it all. And this helps Solomon as he wrestles with the injustices as he looks around and sees it. To remember, there's a judgment day coming. That's bad news to the world, good news to the believer. Because all things are going to be set straight. Look at verse 16. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. This is what he's observing as he looks around. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring everything into judgment. Both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity and a time to judge Every deed. Young people, the fact that a day of judgment is coming is good news for the believer. Because there will be vindication for the saints and all things will be set straight. And all the things we have fretted over and all the injustices we have watched and all the injustices that have occurred over the millennia will be settled and things will be made right. What's unfortunate is how many clergy don't say that. And leave out one of the most significant parts of the gospel. They shy away from it. That is incomplete evangelism. Incomplete evangelism. The bad news has to come before the good news. Or the good news is not good news because there's no bad news. First is law, then gospel. That is the biblical plan. That is the biblical model, the biblical paradigm for biblical evangelism. You see it in the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. The latter... Makes no sense without the former. The latter being grace makes no sense without law. Now some people still wonder, well then, and I've wondered this, why is justice delayed so long? You ever wonder that? Seems like never is brought to account. Why does God wait until the end of time to settle all things once and for all? Sometimes things get settled earlier, but why, for the most part, is he saying, well, wait to the end time? Well, the preacher had a good answer for that, verse 18. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so they may see that they are like the animals. In other words, look at the phrase, he tests them. What's his answer? That our present existence is a proving ground to test our character and our response to God. That's what he's saying. Now, his next statement confuses some, so let's look at what the text says. We just keep following the text here. When he compares animals to humans... And some people get confused, and it's not what it might seem at first. So let me read it, and let me tell you what he's saying. Verses 19 to 21. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Animals have no, uh, humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is hevel. There's our word from last week, the Hebrew word hevel, meaning vapor or mist or smoke or temporary or momentary. All go to the same place, all come from dust and dust return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. Let me tell you what he's not saying, what he is saying. He's not saying 
And he's not offering some kind of evolutionary, atheistic, nihilistic view of human life and human existence. And animals and people are all the same, have the same origin, and will end in the same way, and that there's no afterlife. That's not what he's saying. The preacher's point is not about common ancestry or common biology. It's about common destiny, and the destiny's in the dirt. That's what, it, that's what this is talking about. It's all it's talking about. And it is one of the strongest affirmations of the inevitability that death is coming. Unless Christ returns and you belong to him, you will die, and I will die. Unless Christ returns, we will die and our days will come to an end on this planet. That's his point. Look ahead. Judgment is coming. And remember, for the believer, judgment and God's wrath are part of the gospel. They're an important part of the gospel because they offer the bad news and it makes the good news all the greater. It makes simple grace amazing grace when you understand what we are delivered from. All right, what is Ecclesiastes 3 calling us to do? At least two things, and then we'll land the plane. Number one, this chapter, ladies and gentlemen, young people. Remember, Ecclesiastes is written to young people. He is targeting young people constantly. Number one, remember God orders time. Not us, not the United Nations, not the U.S. Congress. God orders time. He's good, and we can trust his timing. I love Psalm 119, 165. I, I memorized it as a teenager. Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Great shalom have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. Nothing. Doesn't say nothing will hurt them. Doesn't say nothing will ever bring them heartfelt sorrow. But nothing can make them stumble. Nothing. God reminds true Christians of his timing. The Bible reminds true Christians of his timing. And to remember that when it comes to those who are blood-bought, forgiven, one with Christ, sealed by his Holy Spirit... Deus pro nobis. God is for us. He's for his people. And that is why Solomon, again, wants us to see why our lack of control in life is the very thing that can give us hope. That's key. Second thing to remember. So remember, God orders time. He's good, and we can trust his timing. Second thing to remember here is that God rescues those who fear him from the coming judgment. And this comes out over and over again in the book. The phrase, fear God, comes out six times in Ecclesiastes, especially in the last paragraph. I told you I'm memorizing the last two verses. I would highly encourage you to memorize the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. Keep working on it. It is one of the best paragraphs for crystallizing what it is that God is calling us to in this life if we know Him. The phrase, fear God, six times. Not in the sense of cowering in the corner, we said that, but to kneel and respect his authority as the sovereign king. I said that's why I like to read brothers and sisters who write theology in an African context. They get kingship. They get that God is the sovereign king and they are to be enthusiastic as they worship him. 
You see this some in South, Africa, South America too and Central America. There's this, this holy reverence of God that he is the king and the king can do whatever he wants. And our job is to worship him, trust him, love him, and kneel with respect. He has the power over life and death. And that means Ecclesiastes, ladies and gentlemen, young people, when the dust is settled, Ecclesiastes points straight to the cross and straight to the gospel of Christ to the need to repent and believe, because that's the way we honor God the most, is to believe in His only begotten Son. Those are the ones He will deliver from the coming judgment, damnation, and the lake of fire and hell. There is hope. If you're alive, if you're hearing, there is hope this morning. That no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, no matter if you're terrified, if other people find out, there is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And there is hope because God is our sovereign, loving King. And He's got everything under control. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You for Solomon. And for inspiring him to write this. So that the final product was infallible and inerrant. And that we have this journal... that points us to the fact that you're in charge, you're in control, and our calling, if we know you, is to fear you and trust you, not to try to figure it all out or accuse you. Forgive us when we've gone the route of Job or Habakkuk and accused you. And if we have and we have not repented, Father, may this be a time when we seek you and repent. And feel that sweetness again of my dad is in control. My father is in control, not me. I don't need answers. I need promises. Oh God, I pray that for us as a people here today. We're weak. We're fragile. We forget. And we do dumb things like accuse you and get angry and all kinds of crazy stuff. Forgive me. We pray this as we lift our voice to you right now in Jesus' name.